Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have of studying your word and, and asking questions. We thank you that you are a God who welcomes questions, uh, that you want us to understand you. Pray that uh, you will guide us today as we uh, probe and, and ask questions and attempt to understand. May your spirit guide us into truth and to a clear understanding of your character. May that, as a result, draw us closer to you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still on the first page. We did uh, through Exodus 12 last time. So we got through the Passover. Don't be surprised if I back up, though, periodically, because I keep, I keep working on this in my head all week long. Not, not every minute of the day, certainly, but uh, now and then I'm, I'm thinking and probing, uh, and sometimes I get new insights into texts we've already covered. But let's start with Exodus 20. Oh, we did do Exodus 20. I'm sorry. Um uh, does anybody, did anybody, by any chance, mark where we left off last I week? I have notes down until Exodus 20. I don't have any notes for Exodus 23, 14. To okay, so let's start with Exodus 23, 14 to 19. Uh, these are the instructions for the annual festivals. And you notice that I'm doing this in canonical order. Uh, that's because I have invested a considerable amount of time thinking about and studying the canonical narrative as it runs through and noticing the uh, times when God says his preferred will and the times when God says his will adapted to the will of the people. In other words, he says his preferred will the first time and then the people say, nah, not, not really. Uh, they did do their own thing and so God says, okay, we're going to have to adapt to what they're doing. Um, and he, do, he doesn't do that in a sense of embracing what they're doing, but in a sense of still meeting them where they are, trying to guide, guide them to higher ground. And so that's why I pay so much close attention to the narrative, because I find it very instructive for understanding the Old Testament. So let's uh, turn to Exodus 23. Um, and... I'm going to start with you, Jonathan. We're on Exodus 23, 14 to 19. 14 to 19. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall not eat unleavened bread for seven days, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt, none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor, which you have sown in the field... And the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That last one is like somebody tucking in something. Oh, I think this is important here. Uh, and that's probably because of verse 18. You shall not sacrifice the blood of my sacrifice together with the food with yeast. Don't, don't put blood together with the food with yeast for my sacrifice. 
Now we're beginning to, to head toward the sacrificial system, aren't we? But we're going to wait to deal with that until we hit Leviticus because that's when we really get into it. But what is, what is going on here? You have these festivals. Three times a year you will hold a festival to me, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Harvest, and the Feast of, let's see, and the First Fruits. Three festivals. What is that about? And does it have anything to tell us about salvation and atonement? Or is this something extra? I assume it has something to do with it. (laughs) Or I wouldn't have it on here, right? (laughs) I just love this passage so much. (laughs) (laughs) So this is an agrarian kind of worship. This follows the the agricultural cycle, does it not? The first Feast of Unleavened Bread does not. That's the exception to these three festivals here. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is the result of the Exodus, an event that God does. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is un- the bread is unleavened because they had to leave in such a hurry they had no time to let the, br- the dough rise. The way you did yeast in the ancient times was you had to let it, the, the old piece of dough ferment enough to be able to give yeast for the whole batch. And, and it took a while because you didn't have starter yeast like we have. You would put that into the dough. It would take a long time for it to actually rise the dough. And particularly because whether they put them in a warming warm oven to let them rise, or whether they had them out, uh, nights were cool even in desert regions, and so they didn't, they couldn't get the the yeast up fast enough as they were leaving. So their bread was unleavened. That's the reason for the, the unleavened bread. Of course, in later in the Bible, yeast becomes a symbol of sin, and, and so no leaven has to do with you know ridding the house of sin. And for that reason, Orthodox Jews when they celebrate Passover. They comb the house, scrub it from stem to stern, especially in the kitchen, to rid it of all breadcrumbs. Everything has to go. Anything that might possibly have had any yeast connected with it has to go out of the house. This is Orthodox Judaism only. So that's the first festival. The second festival is agricultural. You have the harvest festival, and then you have the first fruits now, I think we can readily see that there's a, a connection between ex- the exodus and salvation, isn't there? Uh, as God delivered them from slavery, God delivers us from the slavery of sin. And, and that's a very big metaphor uh, that I think is underlying the ransom metaphor that you find elsewhere in the Bible, the redemption it's like God redeems Israel from slavery. Uh, so, so that you have that to deal with. Uh, what about the agricultural festivals, the har- harvest and the first fruits? Um, I know that God said, "Honor me with the the first uh, mm-hmm. firstborn, the first fruits, uh, mm-hmm. the first of whatever He blesses you with." Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'm assuming that that goes along with those lines. Um, the first, the best of your, the first crops that were um, mm-hmm. produced, um, offering it to God and having a, sac- a festival, I guess, um, in that uh, honor. 
Okay, let's put this into uh, ancient Near Eastern understanding. In Mesopotamia, you offered offerings, your first fruits, to the gods for food. That was what they ate. And by feeding the gods, you were their servants, you were their slaves. So that it was expected of you that you would provide a meal for the, for the gods. And so people would bring their offerings to the temple. The priests would prepare the food before Marduk. And Marduk would inhale the food or eat it. Uh, it isn't quite clear. I think in the earlier periods it was understood that he ate it because there was the mouthwashing ceremony possibly, uh, having to do with cleaning up the mouth after the god had eaten the food. Uh, very difficult for us Westerners to understand. <laughs> Um, but but that was kind of the way uh, they saw it. They saw themselves as giving to the gods. The God of the Old Testament is the reverse. He's the one giving to us. And when we bring our first fruits and our harvest in gathering, we are returning to him. We are thanking him for what he has given us. And that's why he lays a claim on our first fruits. It isn't because we have to feed him and we have to give something to him. It is because we are returning something to him that he has already given us and he is the supreme giver and we are the recipients. What does that tell us about salvation? Isn't he the one who saves us, not we ourselves? And, and that principle is, I think, rooted here. Uh, in these festivals. There's one other thing I want to point out here. There's only three festivals here, and this is this is in the narrative sequence of the Exodus. This is is primary. When God starts giving festivals, He doesn't give innumerable ones. He just gives simple three festivals: one commemorating the Exodus, the other two commemorating the agricultural year. He's going to add on others. One other especially, well, actually two others. The Day of Atonement and the, and the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. Those I have to do, they, the Feast of Tabernacles could be part of the Harvest Festival. But uh, the Day of Atonement's an add-on because of an event that's going to take place. So I want you to keep that in mind because we, we take these out of their context, their narrative context, and think we understand them when in fact we misunderstand them because we don't take them in their narrative context. So I want to, I want to keep that in mind as we move along. So let's move now. We're going to, we're going to be jumping uh, topics here for quite a while. Uh, but just to get little glimpses here, uh, Exodus 24, 9 to 11. I'm sorry, Exodus 24, 3 to 8. It's the next chapter. And uh, Tara, would you please read? When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, 
We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What does this mean? The blood of the covenant sprinkled on the people. And once again, we have to understand ancient Near Eastern ways of making covenants. Uh, we have a text, I believe, from Mari, uh, which this was done. Uh, anciently, especially, I think, in tribal communities, they would cut pe- animals in pieces and walk between the body parts, signifying, you may cut me in pieces if I do not take the stipulations of this covenant on. So the blood of the covenant, in fact, the, the word to make a covenant is the word to cut. It actually means to cut. You cut a covenant, meaning you took on yourself the, the actual cutting of the covenant. Uh, so sprinkling, cutting, a, a, or uh, let's move back here. They, they sliced the juggler vein of the animals, take, taking out the blood. And then he took that blood and he sprinkled it on the altar, which is where they sacrificed the animal, and then he sprinkled it or dashed it on the people, signifying they had said all that the Lord has said we will do. Therefore, they're taking on the stipulations themselves. And keep in mind, this is a Sinai covenant. If we were to study covenants, we would see the same kind of Preferred will being first in the Noah covenant, the Abraham, the initial Abraham covenant, and then Abraham's believes God and it's it's counted to him for righteousness. But but the few verses later, when God gives him another covenant, the covenant of land, he says, "How do I know will this be?" And so there's the cutting of the animals in, in uh, Genesis 15. And God walks between the body parts of the animals and takes on the stipulations of the covenant himself. So that you may cut me in pieces if I do not fulfill this covenant. Uh, but uh, Abraham decides he's going to fulfill the covenant, the initial covenant that he had so much faith in. He decides he's going to fulfill it himself because God seems to be taking too long to do it. It must be up to him. And so he, Ishmael is the result. And God says, okay, uh, since you think you have to do the covenant yourself, it looks like we're going to need some more cutting. And this time it's going to be real personal. You get to cut yourself. Circumcision. So circumcision is not God's preferred will. It's his adapted will to, Moses, uh, to Abraham's lack of faith. Now we're downriver from that. And the people still think they have to fulfill the terms of the covenant. That this is something they do. And so the blood is sprinkled on them. Okay. Fulfill the covenant. This is what leads Paul to Paul's total discussion in, in Romans and Galatians uh, about these covenants and how uh, the Sinai represents Hagar and Ishmael. It's tied together with that problem that God has with uh, not responding by faith, but trying to do it by works. And, and so Paul takes that and runs with that, and that's why he feels comfortable with getting rid of circumcision as a requirement for salvation.
So, so here the God, God is saying that he's the one being cut in this passage that we just read in Exodus. No, the people are. Because they said all that the Lord has said we will do. Uh, so the, the blood goes on the people uh, signifying they're taking on the stipulations on themselves. This is, this is the Sinai covenant. Okay, on uh, verses 9 to 11, which are the next few verses, Robert, you want to read? Yes, uh, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. They were under his feet as it was a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven from clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. By the way, uh, I noticed that Robert read what we usually say, Habayhu, in the Hebrew way. That's because he's taking Hebrew. <laughs> That's how we usually pronounce it, but but Abihu is how you would pronounce it in Hebrew. So you you pronounced it you, you pronounce it the Hebrew way. And, and I think it was most natural since you have been studying Hebrew. All right, uh, so they go up. And they see the God of Israel, what was under his feet like sapphire tile work and like the very heavens for clearness. And toward the leaders of the Israelites, he did not stretch out his hand. And they beheld God and they ate and they drank. What's going on here? I think what, what, what strikes me here is that they ate and drank. Of all things that's recorded here, in, in addition to the appearance of God, is that they ate and drank before the Lord. It reminds me of, um, in the book of Revelation, talks about the Laodicean church, and the God said, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock, and, uh, and if you open your door and I'll come in, I will eat with you. Mm-hmm. It sounds, to me, it's almost important to God that He eats and drinks with us. Right here, and also when he knocks, and what does he do? He comes in and he eats with you. This is going to become even more significant when I unpack the ancient Near East on this. But for now, this is a covenantal meal. And a covenantal meal where you have two parties. The party that is the suzerain or overlord provides the meal for the vassal. But most covenantal meals were between parity in parity agreements between two parties that were allies and on equal par with each other. Uh, and there's a hint of a bit of parity here uh, with God providing the meal because usually eating together with the, the suzerain, it did happen, I believe, but it was more common, I think, with allies making uh, treaties with each other. But when you put this against the cultic setting of the ancient Near East. Remember, I said that the gods ate the meal that the priests provided, that the people brought offerings for, uh, that was their job to feed the gods and keep them happy uh, and content so they wouldn't get angry. But you never, never ate in front of your god. Ancient Near Eastern uh, priests always ate after the god ate and in a different room. And the king also ate some of that food, but again, after the god ate uh, and in a different room. That's because the slave never ate in front of the master. 
and human beings in Mesopotamia understood that God, that God's created human beings to be their slaves. Here, Israel eats in front of, they're seeing God and they eat and they drink. And, and it, it, the, the statement is they beheld God and they ate and they drank. It's apparently while they beheld God. Now, I don't think they saw God's face as later on, uh, explain, as explained in Exodus 32 to 34. But they saw something of God. They saw his feet, perhaps. And they ate and they drank, apparently, while they were looking at him. They ate with him. Um, this also reminds me of Jacob and uh, Laban when they made a covenant. Did they have a feast afterwards or before? I don't recall. I know they made a, a monument. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they did. Okay, okay. Um, I'm but, to because they were too they were... they were too upset and they couldn't make peace to that extent. Okay. Really, a communal meal. Sometimes the peace offering that we translate peace offering is called a communal offering by by scholars because it represents two parties coming together who have been estranged and they make up over a meal. Eating a meal with someone always means reconciliation in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Um, and it's, it's really true of every culture, I think, to a certain extent. We just don't think about it always. Um, you don't eat with your enemies, do you? <laughs> so, so here we have the Israel eating and drinking, beholding God. This is, this is extremely extraordinary and it means that Israel is not Yahweh's slaves. When he brought them out of Egypt, it was not from one slave master to another, as was often the case in suzerain treaties. You were rescued from one king, but brought to another who might be worse. No, Yahweh brings them out of slavery to set them free. And this, this meal, it really signifies that. And it says, and toward the leaders of the Israelites, he did not stretch out his hand, or what, is, what do your versions have? Uh, this is verse 11, first part. Go ahead, Robert. ESV, it says, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Right. He did not lay his hand on them. Uh, one version has he did not do them harm, which is the meaning of laying a hand on someone. To lay two hands on someone was often the way we did bless, they did blessings. Uh, to lay uh, two hands could be to seize them, but usually a single hand grabbing a person is uh, to do harm. And so here he does not do them harm. They, and, and of course they eat and drink in his presence who provided the meal. God does. So this is, this is a very important concept to recognize uh, that Yahweh did not set his people free to be his slaves but to be free. And and that means that in salvation, we're not set free to be God's slaves. We're not set free from sin to be God's slaves. Though Paul calls himself a slave. That's that Jesus said, I don't call you my servants any longer, I call you my friends. Uh, so that is, to me, uh, this is, gives us some overtones for salvation that we need to keep in mind. 
Uh, now, Exodus 25 to 31, we're not going to read all those chapters. <laughs> that would take us the rest of the time. Uh, these are the instructions for building the sanctuary. And those of you who have taken books of Moses from me know that I see the sanctuary as a model of salvation. We, it's symbolic. You have the court. What does the court represent? I, I said it meant justification, but I want to leave that aside for now. The court actually represents the earth. And and the sanctuary represents heaven. Okay? Or the sanctuary in heaven. Mm. And what is the altar of burnt offering? Grab grab the mic, Charlene. What is the altar of burnt offering? Um, Jesus' sacrifice. Right. It represents Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And what does the labor represent? Baptism. Or Baptism. Yeah. Uh, or or cleansing. Yeah. Okay. So justification takes place in the world in the court, right? Then when you go into the, the, the baptism prepares you to then to go into the presence of God, doesn't it? And what's the first thing you encounter when you wa- go in, if you're, if you're reading it the way they would in Hebrew, which is right to left instead of left to right, what's the first piece of furniture? Was it the temple of, not not temple, like the table of showbread? The table of, of bread, the bread of the presence. So you're, you're ingesting the bread through the priest. Then adjusting the bread of the presence of Christ, which corresponds to what in the Christian life? Reading the Bible. Reading the Bible. The, the, eating the bread of life. Uh, Jesus is the bread of life. Uh, then the uh, altar of incense. That's like prayer. Prayer mingled with Jesus editing. Ed- Jesus edits our prayers because we pray such prayers that misrepresent God. <laughs> God, would you please deal with my enemy? Especially, you imagine Jesus editing the Psalms, uh, the angels going, really, you're going to water the furrows of their fields with the blood of your enemies? God, is that really what you're going to do? Jesus says, well, this is the intent of the prayer. I want to show you what they really want and how that lines up with my character. So that that's the mingling of his righteousness uh, incense. Uh, the third one, the, the candlestick. That represents witnessing. Witnessing. Share, the, you are the light of the world. city that is set on the hill cannot be hid. It's Bible study, prayer, and share. I grew up with that formula. Uh, Morris Venden was pastor of the PUC church when I was a student here in the 70s. And that was one of his things he was constantly hammering home, his Bible study, prayer, and share. That the real, the real effort in the Christian life was to do those three things, not trying to keep a long list of rules. Uh, so that, what was that, Rena? What does that do for us? It prepares us for the last part, which is Yeah, it does. It's called... Glorification. The last part is like, called glorification. The yeah. center part is called... You mean the ark, right? The, the ark, ark is glory. The, the room where the ark is is glorification. The center part is. Oh, the center part is the Ten Commandments and the. No, manna. the center part is oh, where we were just seat. were. No, where we just were, at the table of presence. I'm talking about if you have a three part. You have the court, you have the center, and you have the most holy place. What is the holy place? Is that sanctification? Yes, sanctification. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm making I'm making her take the test again. Yes. <laughs> for, for Charlie. <laughs> that prepares us to come into the most intimate presence of God. Where we could see him face to face. And there's a reason why that's so important. Because and and we'll find this out in the next passage. I think it well I'm going to skip 32, 3 to 6. It's simply mentioning sacrifices. We're going to be dealing with that when we move to Leviticus. Uh, so we're going to jump to uh, Levitic- Exodus 32, 25 to 30, and I'm changing 29 to 30. 32. Uh, right here, only that 29 is 30. 32, 25, 30, chapter 32, verses 25 to 30 and Charlene would you read for us please and when Moses saw that the people were naked for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said who is on the Lord's side let him come unto me and all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him and he said unto them so thus saith the Lord God of Israel put every man his sword by his side and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor and the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses and there fell on the people that day about three thousand men for Moses had said consecrate yourselves today to the Lord even every man upon his son and upon his brother that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day okay let's stop right there and we'll capture 30 next what happens here so like the Israelites are worshipping the calf I guess and then so Aaron, Moses tells him to go through and kill kill everybody and he says you've ordained yourself to the priesthood because you did this today Wow, what do you do with that? Is that atonement? Did did the Levites atone for their for the people's sin of worshiping the golden calf? Well, read verse thirty, Charlene. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, "Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin." Uh, so the killing of the people who worshipped the golden calf, did not make atonement. Now later on, uh, we're going to find a story where that seems to be the case, but not here. And and the earlier the story, the closer it is to the preferred voice okay, okay, in the narrative sequence. So this is a story that dramatically changes everything. Up to this time, you do not have an all-male Aaronide priesthood. You have the setting aside of the firstborn. It isn't clear from the text what they're to do. Uh, most people think they were to serve as priests, and that's probably to offer the animal sacrifices. That's probably what they did. But go back to Exodus 19. And... Verses 3 to 6. Would you read those, please, Esther? While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did 
to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Who are the priests? The entire nation. Only the men? The entire nation. Everybody who hears the voice of God from Sinai and who could not hear it? Nobody. Everyone who heard the voice of God was that part of that kingdom of priests. Uh, this reminds me of the New Testament. And the uh, priesthood of all believers? Priesthood of all believers and also the fact that Christ said that those who... Um, who love father and mother more than me, love brother or sister more than me, love husband or wife more than me, are not worthy of me, um, indicating that the zeal has to surpass their closest loves for their kinfolk. Just as the Levites turned on their brothers to kill them, they had more zeal for God than mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Um, that close. Now, now let's, let's put this in uh, context. Here, if if the original priesthood is to be all the people, the worship of the golden calf necessitates something different. That's why you have the introduction of the Aaronite priesthood. Is because uh, worshiping the golden calf, it's very possible if you connect the story at all. To the, what happens when they, the Moabites coalesce with Israel and introduce the worship of their gods, of the Baals, Balapior. When that happens, there's sexual promiscuity. Men and women, whether married or not, adultery takes place, all this takes place. This, if that is associated at all with the golden calf, and I know there are scholars who dispute that, who say uh, when they rose up to play, it simply means they rose up to party. I, I, I think that if you connect the dots to what goes on in worship, there seems to be a, a tendency towards this kind of thing. And, and you can't have a priesthood that composed of men and women in close proximity uh, with the the temptations to idol worship that's constantly going on. So the golden calf experience necessitates a Naranite priesthood. And I think God in this passage also gave him a chance. He, he Moses uh, had sort of a final altar call, said that who is on the Lord's side come to me. He, he didn't just say, um, let's kill everyone. Yeah. He, he he made people priests. Yes, he, people had could decide mm-hmm. whose side do you mm-hmm. want to be on at this final hour. I don't think they and they didn't even kill all those who didn't come over. Uh, I think they killed only those who were very were were leading out and who were unrepentant. That's my sense of things. Otherwise, there would have been far more people dead at the end of the day. Now again, this is major voice stuff. Uh, this is this is God talking in His adapted will to the will of the people. The necessity of the moment uh, requires this. Uh, this is not 
his preferred voice. Um, so let's now see verse 30. Let's, let's uh, work on that a little bit. Uh, would you reread that, Esther? The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. How is Moses going to make atonement for their sin? And now we're going to get a glimpse of what atonement seems to do. What, how, at least how Moses saw atonement. Cheryl, would you please read verses 31 to 35? Just read to the end of the chapter there. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for, your, for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Okay, now I'm going to go to the King James Version here because I want to clarify a point. Yes, nevertheless, on the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Uh, this word has been construed to bl- mean punishment. And there are places in the Hebrew Bible where it seems to mean punishment. But its actual meaning, if you take it literally, is that God take, allows the sin of the people to have its consequences, its natural consequences. And so what happens in consequence, there's a plague. And what kind of plague would likely follow the kind of things we were talking about? <laughs> Venereal disease. Yes, venereal disease. God didn't have to do a thing. That people brought it on themselves. Uh, and that's what visiting the sin, iniquity of the fathers upon the children is. It isn't God punishing children for the father's sin, which is forbidden in Deuteronomy and in Ezekiel. It is the sin itself working itself out from generation to generation. The Bible's form of epigenetics. I'm, I'm still a little unclear about in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Does he mean anything else? When In the day when this works out, oh. when this, this comes to fruition and your sin catches up with you. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Keep in mind... One of the things we need to keep in mind as we read the Old Testament is that the prevailing view of all people in the ancient Near East is that when you suffered any calamity, misfortune, or illness, uh, it was the gods were angry with you and were punishing you. That's, that's a prevailing view of the ancient Near East. And so the language of the Bible, which some Thamnists do not believe in verbal inspiration, right? We believe the language is human. The language of the Bible reflects this worldview. Uh, so God sends the plague. He strikes them with the plague. He, he does all these things. Uh, the Bible also says that God slew Saul. So, so we need to keep that in mind as we read. Um, okay, 
Uh, let's work a little bit more on this passage. Uh, there's something extremely important. Moses can only think of what will make atonement. And Moses can only think that the only thing that make atonement is that someone die for these people. They get blotted out of God's book. They cease to be. And so he offers himself. He doesn't want anyone else to have to do this. He'll do it. And you notice what God says. God doesn't say, Sorry, Moses, you can't be the one to do it because you're not the perfect offering. I have someone who will do that for you. He does not say that. Instead, he says, whoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Does that mean there's no redemption? What what God seems to be against is a kind of substitution where God is the one doing it to the substitute. And blotting them out when when god has to blot someone out they have taken themselves out of god's purview out of his protection that blotting out in a sense is simply reflective of the real condition of the person but god is not accepting that kind of atonement is he of blotting someone else's name out of the book which is which is amazing, and it could have something to do with the fact that time is up. <laughs> this is a bad place to stop. Um, it could have something to do with the fact that Mesopotamia and Mesopotamia substitution was very prevalent. They have more terms for substitute and substitution than the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and the Hebrew Bible sh- infers substitution. But it hardly ever states substitution. Now, we did notice Genesis 22. There's the actual term for substitute. But substitution is inferred, and one has to deal with that very carefully. What does substitution mean? Uh, here, God rejects Moses' substitution, and he doesn't offer an alternative. Uh, people who sin suffer the consequences of their choice. That's at this point. Uh, we're going to have to stop there. It's a bad place to stop. I apologize for that. But we will come back. You we will come back to uh, why this they couldn't see God's face, how significant that is, and the most holy place and the significance of being able to come in the presence of God, what it takes to do that. That will be a theme that actually runs through Uh, the rest of Exodus, and well into Leviticus. So uh, just to connect us to the next time we meet. Okay, let's bow our heads. Father, we want to thank you that you have granted us uh, the ability to understand your word, to grapple with meaning, with wording, and with what you are doing. Help us to continue this process until things become very clear. We pray that you will grant us your spirit to enlighten our minds so that we might see you as you really are. In Jesus' name, amen.